This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Two state-named airlines, one big merger. Motley Fool Money starts now. Welcome to Motley Fool Money. I'm Deidre Bullard here with Motley Fool analyst Jason Moser. Jason, how's it going today? Hey, Deidre, doing well. How about yourself? Doing well. Uh, so yesterday afternoon was all of a sudden a go to your computer moment for me <laughs> because a big merger in the airline world was announced uh, yesterday. They had they had a, a conference call and everything. So Alaska Airlines and Hawaiian Airlines, they're combining in a deal worth around $1.9 billion. You know, the first thing that came to my mind was, wait a second, we've already got a deal going on with JetBlue and Spirit and they're fighting the DOJ. Is, <laughs> is, this, is, is this one going to happen? Well, yeah, that's a, a good observation. I mean, JetBlue and Spirit, that, that definitely is not a done deal uh, no. to this point, right? Still in court, I think, just wrapping, wrapping that up. Yes. I, I do think, I feel like the JetBlue and the Spirit, it could have an impact on this deal. I don't think it will, though. And, and the main reason why, I think the JetBlue and the Spirit deal, there's certainly a greater, there's greater implications on the value-focused consumer where that deal is concerned, I think, right? Those are two airlines right. that are very clearly focused on the value consumer, which is great. We, you know, you, you want that. You want, you want that market that can scratch every itch, so to speak. So, I, I think from, from that perspective, these deals are different enough, right? Alaska and Hawaiian, aren't necessarily as focused on that value-oriented customer as they are about the geography of, of, of the locations that they serve. And, and those locations are unique. Um, I, I, I don't know that it's necessarily something that impacts that value-focused uh, consumer as much. So, I think from that perspective, they're different enough. I feel like this deal probably has a better chance of going through. Certainly, it shouldn't go through the same scrutiny, I, I, I think, that the JetBlue and Spirit deal are going through now. But by the same token, hey, listen, anything can happen. <laughs> that is something we've learned. But yeah, you make a good point there, because with the JetBlue and Spirit thing, you have that overlap on on routes, and you don't have that as much with these two. And the other thing is also is that you know Alaska is sort of the the distant fifth at this point uh, to the to the major airlines. Although this this deal does make it could make it if it happens a you know a closer competitor, even though it's still you know relatively a niche player. Yeah, I, I mean, you you look at these these airlines put together. I mean, the, the merits here, I think they, they make a lot of sense, right? They they are pro consumer. I think it's pro competitive. I mean, I think when you look at these two combined, you would have fourteen hundred flights per day. Only twelve really areas of overlap there. So I, I mean, you're having something where you're not having to get rid of a ton of redundancies, right? It does feel like it just makes this entire network more valuable. Um, they'll be able to expand the unique locations served, and, and ultimately, I think an important part of this 
is that they're really going to be able to broaden the international portfolio over time, right? I mean, when you consider where these these you know these two locations, I mean, Alaska and Hawaii, right? I mean, these these are areas that really open up a, a whole a whole new uh, side of the world that that uh, that that. You know, maybe they they wouldn't have necessarily had the opportunity uh, to pursue otherwise. Um, I mean, they did put some numbers around it, feeling like this could result in two hundred thirty-five million dollars potential synergy savings. That even seems like kind of a low number when you look at the context of the deal. And I think a lot of that really boils back down to the fact that this is not something where they're eliminating a lot of redundancies. It does seem just more to make the entire network more valuable, and I think that's important to note. Yeah, yeah, I think that that is important. I think the other thing with with this one too is, you know, it's a different kind of airline thing too because you've got I mean, this is these airlines are very very niche and they're very sort of particular. One of the things that I think about with Alaska is, you know, they talked about minimal disruption, so that's a good thing. But they talked about what they learned during the Virgin America acquisition. I really liked Virgin. I liked their safety videos. I liked the vibe and you know, Hawaiian Airlines. I don't know if you've ever traveled on it, but there's 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 a Hawaiian spirit to it. There's the there's the the whole Aloha thing. I don't know. I worry that this is that there is going to be that loss of character. What do you think? Well, there could be, but I mean, I'm I'm glad you made that point because I think there is something to that. I think, you know, on the one hand, a lot of us. I mean, when when you're just talking about domestic travel here and in, in in the contiguous uh, 48, right? I mean, just. Airlines are just a commodity, I think, for the most part, right? People just want to get from point A to point B at a, at a reasonable cost, and they're not so worried about the identity or the culture or the vibe, as as the uh, the kids these days might call it, right? <laughs> but but it, it is something when you when you look at Alaska, when you look at Hawaiian Airlines, I think you know Copa Airlines is another one that stands out to me, and that's just because you know we used Copa when we flew uh, to Costa Rica and back, right? There's an identity associated, a brand, sort of a feeling. That I wouldn't say is necessarily a competitive advantage, but it's a differentiator. It's it's neat. It's nice. It's something that I think makes the traveling experience a little bit more fun, a little bit more adventurous, a little bit more memorable. And, and so I, I do think it, you know it's important to note. I mean, it, both CEOs feel it's it's very important that when this, assuming this does this does happen, they want to maintain both brands. They want to maintain both identities. They're not looking yes. to really you know create some sort of hybrid here. It's just a matter of utilizing the scale. To better serve people, and so I think that's something they'll make sure to, to focus on is is continuing that distinct identity that they both have built up th- through the years. Yeah, and I think the the, the vibe matters less when uh, it matters more when you're on vacation. It matters less if you're just you know taking a flight that you have to take for 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 business or business travel yeah. or something like that. I mean, it's just yeah. it's different. But you know, there are it made me nostalgic for the for the brands that we've lost because <laughs> there are there were some airline brands, some like n- little niches that I loved, like when Delta had Song that used to run from oh, yeah. like Boston to Florida. Like I love that. Like there was a very particular vibe to. To, to that, are there any that like? Are there any that you remember that you just like loved? Like, did you like Eastern way back when? I, I can't believe you said because I was going to say that is exactly the name I was going to point out here, and I don't know that I would I would look at Eastern as being so unique. Maybe in in its time, I guess it was, but but I, I definitely have fond memories of Eastern Airlines back in the day, and the reason why ultimately is it's the first flight I ever took by myself, no parents. I was like five years old. 
Uh, I flew to Greensboro, North Carolina to go visit my grandparents. I was on my own. I mean, this was a really big deal. It was a life event for me, a life event for my parents. And it, you know, I mean, I was, I was five and I still remember it vividly. When you, when you asked that question, that Eastern was the first, first one that popped into mind. I can't believe you said that. I remember because I, I grew up in Boston and I used to be able to take the shuttle to to visit my aunt in New York City. And, ah, and it was one of those things where they would actually take your credit card on the plane. Like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like you could just memories, get on right? the plate. It's crazy. Well, it, it, the New York Times had this opinion piece related to the to the JetBlue and and, and uh, merger, and it said the headline was it the bigger airlines get, the worse they become. What do you think? Is that accurate? Uh, but there's probably something to that. I mean, that maybe goes back to that sort of brand identity and focusing on that niche sort of customer that you're serving, like the experience, that vibe, whether it's Hawaii or Alaska or or you know Central America, whatever it may be. Yeah, I think the bigger things get, to, you know, they 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 lose a little bit of that touch. I think that the yeah. uh, airlines, retail, restaurants, I, I think that that's just uh, that's just you know one of one of sort of the unfortunate things that comes with growth in many cases. Well, the market hasn't really loved this for Alaska. They obviously they loved it for for Hawaiian. But one of the things that that I was thinking about with this was not just the commercial side of this, but Hawaiian has this partnership with Amazon. I think it was announced last yeah. year. This relationship to ship packages, uh, which which they kind of needed at the time. It was it was material to their business. Feels less material to Alaska's business right now. But there it, maybe there's a possibility there that this becomes. Actually Actually, a bigger a bigger part of it, and that actually might be really good news for Alaska, like down the road a bit. I think it could be. I mean, when you look at the nature of this deal from the get go, I mean, I I agree. This is something that's more important for Hawaiian than it would be for Alaskan. There's no reason it shouldn't continue, though. I don't think. I mean, when it was announced, I believe it was it was uh, late 2022. I mean, there's an eight year contract. Um, I, I think. I mean, aircraft are provided by Amazon. I think it's it's interesting to note that I mean there's some costs associated with the relationship that will be ultimately pass-throughs for Hawaiian like high margin revenue for Hawaiian I think in this case like cer- certain costs like fuel for example fuels a pass-through for them so I mean this is something where Amazon is really getting in there and offering a lot of support to, to be able to make this happen and requiring on er, er, relying on on Hawaiian sort of expertise and you know their their hubs, their network, their ability to be able to get things uh, to, to 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 places in a timely manner. I, I don't think this is anything that really prevents that relationship from continuing. And, and I agree. I think that when you look at the combined entity, I, I absolutely can see a world where Amazon would want to expand this relationship because ultimately, this is something that I think will give these two airlines, if, if, if they're combined, it will give them a greater international presence with new markets served. Well, I mean, listen, Amazon is, is all about new markets served, right? I mean, they're they're yeah. looking for for as many markets as they can they can find. So I, I think uh, this is something where it wouldn't surprise me at all to see the relationship with Amazon ultimately grow if these two uh, do end up combining. Well, and also Amazon, as part of that deal, they got a stake in Hawaiian. So yes, it, yes. It, that starts to become more interesting as as you go down the road a bit. Warrants to acquire up to 9.4 million Hawaiian holdings, common shares over the next nine years. So, yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how that uh, how that all shakes out. 
Yeah, yeah. For me, that's the wild card in this deal. Like the rest of the deal is like fairly pretty standard. We see these things with with airlines all the time. But that was the part of the deal that made me sort of get get a little more excited about it. Oh yeah. Yep. Absolutely. Well, I want to switch over to talk a little bit about another uh, M and A Monday, which is uh, the deal for Roche, uh, the pharmaceutical company, to acquire Carmot Therapeutics for two point seven billion in cash. Which is really interesting, considering they've only, uh, I think, equity invested in it is about three hundred eighty-five million. So this just seems to me like, boy, everybody wants in on these GLP one <laughs> <Yeah>. drugs. <laughs> they, yeah. they, they just, they just got to spend to get it. I mean, with Carmot, you've got uh, they're working on both the oral and the injectables for um, for type two diabetics with obesity, and also uh, one of them is for type one. This just seems like like everyone just is like rushing into this space right now. Does every major drug uh, company kind of need to have, need to be targeting this right now? You know, this seems like the AI of the pharmaceutical industry. Right? I mean, it is like, you've got AI. I mean, Pharma obviously is going to tell you they're using AI for for everything that they're doing as well, and and, and they are. But But this does seem like the AI sort of uh, hype for the pharmaceutical industry. I mean, they're all clamoring for presence in the space. I mean, I understand why. We, we've talked about the numbers before, but when you look at the data, you get 40% of Americans are, uh, are considered obese. You get 7.7% that are considered severely obese. Over 30% of Americans considered overweight, right? And that, you know, all, all of that leads into, I mean, the challenges with diabetes and whatnot. So, I mean, it, it does, yeah, it, it, these 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 companies are all trying to figure out an opportunity at least right because it, this is it's not an opportunity that's going to last forever um and so clearly it's 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 a problem they're looking for ways to solve it and uh so it's, it's not surprising uh to see Roche get in here and, and and actually make this bid yeah it's it's interesting so you mentioned ai and i'm thinking about these two cycles and i'm thinking about the ways that they're similar and differ so the way that they're the same is obvious like everyone's trying to figure out the angle tons of money flooding into the space but with with ai your your biggest risk is probably like maybe oversupply of certain things or over investing in areas it seems to me with with investing in glp1 drugs you've got this other risk which is you know, anytime you invest in biotech and a drug, it's like, what if something happens? What if yeah. all of a sudden, you know, we're so new into this, what if uh, something is discovered, it causes cancer or there's other symptoms? I mean, we've heard already of like di- certain digestive symptoms and pancreatitis and things like that. As an investor, you see these two cycles. How do you kind of think about the risks with with that? Well, I, I mean, I, I think it's, it's a difficult situation because they're looking at a solution they're looking at essentially sort of you know a long-term solution to a serious problem right but they don't necessarily have the data to support whether it actually is an effective long-term solution right i mean when you talk about using these types of drugs on an ongoing basis and that's what that's what it is really in many cases here it's it's kind of this is becoming sort of a lifestyle thing and like this is going to be something that you as a person will need to be doing for the rest of your life. They don't really have a lot of information as to how many of these drugs will actually impact you using them for 5, 10, 15, 20 years and beyond. And so from that perspective, I mean, it does feel like, you know, making this acquisition, getting karma, they get 
it, at least a pipeline with some potential candidates because it you know a lot of these a lot of these companies you're either hitting a home run or you're striking out there's kind of no in between it either works or it doesn't right um and so Roche is getting three distinct drugs in the pipeline that are are you're going through trials right now i mean you get CT388 which is a phase 2 ready drug CT996, which is phase one, and then in CT868, which is phase two. So they're going through the process, right? And that's great. That's what you want to see. But that that's not that's not the end, right? I mean, just getting them cleared, then ultimately they need time to understand the data. And 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 the only thing that cures that is time. Now, hopefully, I mean, they discover the the drugs that are more challenged. Earlier on, and, and they're able to kind of eliminate those from contention. Uh, but but it is it is a it is a very very difficult process to get through, and ju- and just a, a really really tough one because there's so many different potential outcomes with so many different potential drugs. I mean, it just uh, the possibilities seem endless at this point, which is both a good thing and and obviously a challenging thing as well. Yeah, yeah, it's it's interesting because that happened sort of last week with with Pfizer. They're testing a GLP one pill, and they've got a twice daily one that they're testing and a once daily one that they're yeah. testing. And the twice daily one, uh, you know, the the side effects were too great, and that just tanked the stock. So you know, it is injecting a little, pardon the pun, it is uh, bringing a little more <laughs> a little more risk there. to these to these companies in in that they're now really really tied to this a bit more. And with a two point seven billion dollar acquisition, that that is a very big bet, and that could could go really well or or not so well. It is, and and you know they're playing the odds. They feel like with you know, that that size of a deal, I mean, you're getting that pipeline, and I mean, it's it's it, that's really the nature of these kinds of deals. Is you're is you're not le- you're not necessarily looking for, looking for the certainty, but you're looking for the pipeline that will give you the best opportunity for a more certain outcome. And and I think that's what Roach feels like they're getting with this deal. And given given the pipeline there, it, it, it seems like a reasonable assumption. Yeah, I think so. Well, thanks for spending this M&A Monday with me, Jason. Oh, you got it. Thank you. Ricky Malvi with Motley Fool Money here to tell you about a vehicle that is redefining sporting luxury, the Range Rover Sport. The first thing I noticed when I sat down in the driver's seat is that I felt like I was in a cockpit. You're up off the ground in a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. I also really appreciated the overhead 360-degree camera view that let me know exactly where I was going as I was backing out of the parking space. I went for a drive in the Range Rover Sport out in Littleton, Colorado, tested the accelerator just a little bit, and felt the performance and agility. It's an instinctive drive with engaging on-road dynamics and effortless composure. To put it plainly, the Range Rover Sport is powerful. It's also quiet and comfortable. Advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification offer new levels of comfort and refinement. The third generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable yet. I'd like to invite you to visit LandRoverUSA.com to learn more about the Range Rover Sport. regular Motley Fool Money listener, you're probably well aware of how dividend stocks have the potential to really supercharge your portfolio's returns. 
dividends have accounted for around 40% of the total return of the S&P 500 since 1930, and of course have been an important tool for all-time greats like Benjamin Graham and Warren Buffett. Our top-notch analysts at Motley Fool Stock Advisors certainly agree and have put together a list of five quality dividend pairs that are also recommendations in our Stock Advisor service. The report is free to you just as a thank you for listening to our podcast. No purchase necessary. Just go to fool.com slash dividends and we'll email it directly to your inbox. That's fool.com slash dividends to claim your five dividend stock recommendations now. Solosto recently made headlines for its viral stunt with Snoop Dogg. I sat down with John Maris, CEO of Solo Brands, to discuss the company's unique collection of brands and where the company's headed next. Excited to talk about the brand, uh, sort of the brand umbrella, and let's start by talking about what Solo Brands is, because you've got a variety of different, really kind of eclectic products. You've got the fire pits and the stoves, which are very popular. You've got clothing, you've got kayaks and paddleboards. I was trying to find a link here, and I feel like it's a like a strong social presence, a sort of upstart beloved brands, and also lifestyle focus. Is that is that sort of how you view it? Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, and maybe said differently, the two kind of commonalities that I tend to center around are first and foremost that these are brands that um, were all digitally native. Mm. So they all started out as e-commerce businesses first, and then kind of rolled into you know a retail component, right, and, and have some element of that. But there was kind of a center around e-commerce and around building direct relationships with customers that we really liked. And then the second one being that all of these brands are very focused on experiential, putting smiles on faces, making people's lives a little bit better via those experiences. So we really like the smiles, experiences component to it. And then obviously, you know, our ticker is DTC. That's the ticker we trade under. Um, we're very focused on that direct-to-consumer relationship and uh, being able to, to, to drive that relationship uh, directly with the customer. Yeah, interesting because they are sort of they're I would describe them as enthusiast brands. So Solo Stoves has you know has really become popular. People like it, but these are also sort of these are one-time purchases except for for the chubbies, although I know with Solo you've got accessories and things like that. I was curious about that because now you've moved into the pizza oven category, which is a category that didn't really really exist that much a few years ago, and now it seems to be a very popular category. I mean, people do love their pizza. How do you discover shifts like that when you're trying to build businesses? Because it seems like some of these businesses, you've actually found an opportunity where there wasn't really one before. Yeah, it goes back to what I was just describing on that direct-to-consumer relationship. Because most of our transactions, especially in our first decade, came through e-commerce as a channel, we had this one-to-one relationship, and customers were giving us feedback all the time, sometimes indirectly, just through the way that they're purchasing, but oftentimes directly. They're saying, gosh, like we found this product and it's really cool. Um, so a customer might find, you know, a backyard pizza oven product, um, but then they would have a frustration with it. Like it, it does this really well, but it doesn't heat evenly. And Solo Stove should totally look at this. And so what happened is, is we, we would just start listening to customers. And then ultimately that would drive us into new categories. Pizza is obviously the one that you highlighted. We just recently in the last couple of months launched basically the solo stove modern day version of a, of a, like a patio torch that a lot of people, you know, have, have seen in the past. This is like a 
basically like you stake it in the ground and it's literally like a torch you put gel fuel in and it's citronella and it's an insect repellent it's an ambiance deal and burns for five hours but this is just customers like super frustrated every year they were having to change out their torches and they're like solo stove everything seems to last longer could you guys design something and so most of our product innovation has come from and our category expansions have come from customers telling us categories that they want us to play in you mentioned earlier that your ticker is DTC, so direct to consumer. But your business is sort of your business is actually really evolving into into multi-channel. So, tell us a little bit about what's happening there and how you're thinking about that balance of that direct to consumer business, which has been really strong, and also this new sort of emerging wholesale business. You know, so often direct to consumer is referenced as a channel versus a relationship. The way that I think about DTC or, or direct-to-consumer is more as a relationship than a channel. When I think about channels, e-commerce, retail, wholesale, marketplace, um, you know, even corporate uh, for us has become a really meaningful channel. These are all channels, but what's interesting is that we have found that via intentionality, we actually are, have been able to build direct relationships with customers through all of those channels. They just look a little bit different. For instance, with our wholesale or retail partners, when a customer purchases a product in the store, we now are, are finding ways to drive that customer back to our site to register product, to follow up with an accessory purchase, um, to receive a free gift, and ultimately continue to still drive a new relationship, a direct relationship with a customer, even though their first entrance to the brand came through a wholesaler or a retailer. So somebody asked me recently, uh, do you plan to change your ticker? You know, like is DTC going to be irrelevant now? And the reality is, is my, my quick answer was I've learned never to say never, but relationship is, is going going to continue to matter. That direct relationship with the customer is going to continue to matter to us in a meaningful way. And regardless of the channel dynamic of where we're selling or bringing that customer in for the first time, we're still going to be very, very focused on driving a direct relationship with the customer, regardless of that channel. So, as you get deeper into these relationships, uh, on your recent earnings call, you talked about Dick's Boarding Goods, uh, your growing relationship with Target. What are you looking for in a retailer? And are you seeing variations by region or by product? Yeah, there's two main focuses whenever we're going into a new retailer. The first one is, does it build brand equity? And what I mean by that is, one, is it a retailer that when a consumer equates that retailer to our brand, is it going to bring, is it going to build the brand? Associated with that is we think about it in a, in a big way like traffic, like we do traffic on our website. You know, we can pay for traffic via digital marketing expense. Or we can partner with a retailer who gives us broad exposure in a big way to eyeballs. Take Target as an example. This week, we'll launch in 2,000 Target stores roughly across the entire U.S. with a solo stove product and, and merchandising strategy. All of that traffic that's flowing through the stores are now going to have eyeballs on solo stove in a new way. And many of those customers are not online shoppers. And so that's a big a brand awareness play for us. The second component for us is... Uh, we want to meet the, the needs of the customer. I've been talking about this, but the importance of the customer being able to have optionality and find us when they want us, where they want us, and making it convenient for the consumer to interact with our brand. 
is, is really important. Retailers are helping us do that in, in broad scale. So those are the two things we're focused on is brand building and brand awareness slash traffic, and then ultimately meeting the needs of the customers by being where they are uh, when, they, when they want us to be there. I know another thing that you've been pursuing within this wholesale effort is the kind of like the shop in shop strategy. And, you know, I've, I've been fascinated by this studying retail because now it seems like you have these two things. You have putting things in stores, getting shelf space. That's one thing. But then there's this other thing now of having stores within stores, designated area, designated branding. I'm seeing more, more and more uh, retailers pursue this, you know, Target, which we've talked about, but, you know, Macy's everywhere seems to be really doing a lot more of this store within a store strategy. It sounds like that would, that's probably, probably a good, uh, like a tailwind for you, right? Yeah, absolutely. It, it is interesting. And like you said, it's, it's two very different things, right? It used to be, you just like fight really hard to get into a, a new retail partner and then you're just on the shelf. Right. And then over time, maybe you fight your way towards closer and closer towards that end cap. Now it's becoming much more experiential. And I think retailers have figured out at the end of the day, retailers are looking at revenue per square foot. I mean, that is an important metric that they follow and via, you know, both case studies, even with our own brand, but obviously across many brands in, in different retailers, they're finding that their revenue per square foot actually can go up even when they offer more square footage, what might be considered less efficient real estate, because they're, they're these bigger displays, they actually are driving more revenue per square foot within those displays. So these are important metrics. We're watching them closely and making sure that it's merchandised the right way. But we do feel and are seeing that consumers enjoy being able to come in and experience a brand in a different way, even within a retailer. And it's driving better purchase activity uh, and behavior in those shop and shops. So we're hopeful in 24 that we're going to continue to expand in several and several more of those shop and shops. So thinking about the the strategy right now, as you're as you're growing and and potentially acquiring, how do you balance that with with debt and you know being a young company needing to take advantage of opportunities, but also needing to be responsible as a publicly traded company? You've you've got a lot of different things, uh, little uh, to sort of keep in the air there. How how do you how do you think about that? You know, we've we've had the good fortune to have very little debt on our balance sheet uh, relative to our EBITDA generation. We've been a profitable business um, since the first year we started as Solo Stove in 2011, and we've been very cash generative uh, during that time as an e-commerce business. So when you put those metrics together or those qualities, those business qualities together of EBITDA positive and cash cash flow positive it puts you in a stronger position to be able to, to, to open up doors for opportunities and make decisions, not necessarily based on your liquidity capabilities, but more based on what's best for the business. Now, this year, we have talked quite a bit about how much cash you know, we plan to, to be cash flow positive on the year, and it's, and it's quite impressive. So this is a business that is very profitable you know, in, the, in the mid to high teens from an EBITDA perspective, and this year generating at or, or right around the EBITDA uh, level of cash as we're generating an EBITDA on the year. And so that's putting us in a great position. We're, we're less than, I think we're right around 1.6 um, uh, times lever from a debt perspective. So very low debt leverage. 
and planning to be at or below one times lever by the end of this year. So we're in a very strong cash position. We have great liquidity. And, and as we see opportunities, we'll continue to, to find ways to invest in, in long-term growth. Last question for you. If, if everything kind of goes as you hope and, and your strategy goes along, what does Solo look like in five or 10 years? Yeah, you know, it's a it's a business. We we've talked a lot about our international expansion efforts, but this is um, a business that we see tremendous potential to create a household brand. You know, there are there are brands out there that we admire a lot. You know, one that comes to mind that's just down the street uh, from us down in Austin. We're up in Dallas. Uh, is Yeti. You know, and they've done a fantastic job building their brand, building brand awareness. Um, I'm not sure what their unaided brand awareness is, but I would imagine it's quite high. Uh, ours is still very early in its story. I think five to 10 years from now, our brand is much well better known as popular as our, as our products have become. There are still so many people that don't know who Solo Stove is as a, as a business or especially any of our other brands. And so we're continuing to drive that message and, and build more brand awareness. Um, but this is a, a company that has a potential to be well into the billion dollar plus revenue range, continue to be profitable and continue to be innovating great experiential products for our customers inside and outside the home. As always, people on the program may have interests in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. I'm Deidre Woolard. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.